Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining, to be, joining me with this podcast. One of the things that is uh, some listeners may be aware of that I did write a book on the Banking Royal Commission and I looked intensely at the banks. The book's called Vulture City, How a Bank Has Got, a, got Away With uh, Swindles. So you can see those details on the podcast website. But some of the issues that are left outstanding is how employees of banks have felt in having to sell products that they may not have felt comfortable doing. Now, this goes into the area of ethical conduct and the management of KPIs within financial institutions. An organisation that's at the forefront of dealing with issues on behalf of the banks is the banking staff in the Financial Services Union. They've recently released a study that looks at the thorny area of ethical issues and how bank staff feel when certain KPIs are imposed on them that may not necessarily be reflected in organisational codes of conduct um, that are written down, that are available on websites and elsewhere. Joining me today is Julia Angrisano, who is the National Secretary of the FSU. She'll be talking to us about that research report and how uh, the FSU is grappling with these issues at the current time. Julia, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks, Tommy. Nice to be with you. Now, you've released a report. Um, It's actually called Justice Tempered, which is a a play on the evidence given by the CBA's uh, Chief Executive Officer, Matt Common, during the Royal Commission. Why did you undertake this study? We thought this was an important study to to undertake. Really, what we wanted to um, do is, as you said, the Banking Royal Commission was an important moment. We've been calling for the Commission for probably about two years as a national union because we could see the first-hand effects uh, that the culture and the practices across the banking sector was having, of course, directly on our members, those workers on the front line. Uh, We could see the impact it was having on on them uh, because they every day would be working in an environment where they were pitted, um, having to make decisions against um, their own good judgment, their own ethics, their own understanding of what was right uh, in terms of what the customer needed. But they were making decisions which were um, being pushed uh, because of the the stress and the pressures that they were facing um, from their management up above. So effectively, each of their decisions every day was a decision about whether or not they were going to do something that was in the customer's best interest or was it um, what they thought was what what was needed in order to achieve the sale and and achieving the sale meant that your life was easier because you didn't get the pressure from your manager Um, and indeed achieving the sale and selling the product um, meant that you probably were um, not going to be faced with a performance plan which could ultimately lead to the termination of your job. So every day our members were confronted with those types of pressures um, and unfortunately for some of them uh, managerial practices which became very toxic in the workplace, Uh, you know, leaderboards that would name and shame workers who weren't selling enough product. And our members would often report to us that um, it just feels like we're flogging for the sake of flogging because we need to achieve um, the outcomes that the bank needs, which are obviously sales um, and metric focused. 
not necessarily doing what I believe to be in the in the interests of the customer or knowing what the customer needs are. I'm actually in some cases selling them products that I know that they can't afford or that they are products that actually they can never actually access, which is the product that we're talking about um, in the Commonwealth Bank when, when Matt Common says, um, and it was a moment in the Royal Commission that everybody recalls pretty uh, pretty closely because, you know, those those notes that are, that are put up as evidence in the Royal Commission where um, he's trying to raise up above with his, his then CEO, uh, Ian Narev, where he says, we're selling uh, this product, which was um, uh, CCI, uh, an insurance product for, for those people who were getting uh, credit cards. We know that most of the people that we're targeting actually can never claim on this. Um, and that's when he was told uh, by the then CEO to, to temper his sense of justice. And for us, that was a real moment in time that was perhaps shocking for, um, for others who, had, who were listening in to the Royal Commission but wasn't that surprising to us because we knew members who were selling that product who were feeling the intense pressure and that conflict of interest, the jarring of their own ethics to sell a product to a customer who they knew couldn't afford it, didn't need it, and indeed could never claim against that particular product, but they had to do it because that's what the bank was pushing at the time. So this report was important for us because we wanted to make sure that the voice of workers and and the issues that they were facing um, and have been facing um, actually got got uh, w- was recognised, uh, and I think this report does that uh, in a way that clearly um, exposes the conflict of interest and and the way in which um, workers are, are pitted against customers every day in the finance sector. One of the interesting things in the report that I noted as re- when I read through it. Um, and read through the remarks of the people who were part of the focus group, was the difference between what is written down as a code of conduct or organisational value and the practice that an organisation undertook. What are the, you mentioned earlier that there were leaderboards in, in various, in some organisations. Um, how widespread was that practice that, that, that caused people to, and not to compromise some of their personal ethics and ethics that may have been may have been written down almost as if it's cladding on a on a house right mm. um, how how widespread was that practice of leaderboards where people were being pressured publicly that's a that was a widespread practice used um, across every one of the big four banks. Um, and so just to give the listener some idea of what we're talking about, a big whiteboard in the office somewhere that, that ranks you against your peers um, and if you're not selling enough product, you're in red and if you are selling enough, then you're in green and that would be the board that would stand, um, that the manager would stand in front of every morning and in some cases publicly berate and humiliate staff um, that hadn't sold enough products. So in order to avoid that public naming and shaming, um, those kinds of tactics were used by bosses to extract outcomes that custom that our members say quite often resulted in them going home at the end of the day knowing that actually they didn't serve the customer in their best um, interest, they didn't actually give them what they needed, but rather sold them a product because the bank at the time uh, was had a particular sales campaign and often there would be a very sharp focus on a particular product, whether it was a credit card or um, insurance, it, it, it varied. 
but the pressure was always the same and it was to sell products. And so our members often would talk about the, the real gap that exists between um, their own um, values um, and the values that are expressed by their employer. Uh, banks have excellent um, mission statements in terms of why they exist. And if you read them, you would think that that was um, the perfect utopia. But we saw clearly through the Banking Royal Commission, uh, Commissioner Hayne, I think, did a really good job where he actually um, diagnoses the problem really well. He gets to the heart of the issue very quickly when he says um, this was all about the pursuit of short-term profit, that pursuit of profit at all costs. Um, and that led to, to ultimately him describing banks as being just greedy. And I thought that was a really good diagnosis of the problem. Um, but that's not what the banks say. Um, their value statements are, are very different and so for our members operating in this environment every day at work, um, the gap between the values expressed by the banks and their own personal ethics, um, that became such a big conflict and a big uh, gap that for many of them it had such negative impacts on their mental health. I spoke about the pressure and the harassment. Um, many of our members described being bullied uh, daily by their managers, um, like the leaderboard example I gave you, uh, like having to phone the area manager or the manager above to explain why they hadn't sold enough products. And so we could see the impact on their mental health, um, the violation of their personal ethics um, in working in an environment like that absolutely took its toll on bank workers um, over that period of time. What were the other key findings? Clearly that what we've just spoken about is one of the findings, which is the ethical, uh, the lack of, compatibility between the published ethical statements and the way in which managers acted that caused an enormous amount of distress for bank employees. That's clear. What were the other uh, findings that you felt were significant from the report recently released? Um, I think the report is, does a really good job in um, looking at the, the impact. So the, the um, as I said earlier, the personal health and wellbeing and that leading to, in some cases, a very significant deterioration in the mental health um, or the loss of morale at work for many of our members. But also I think what the report does um, is really expose the fact that bank workers don't have a voice inside their organisation. And when they were um, raising particular concerns about uh, these practices, um, the automatic response from management above was to close that down and you, you, you just cannot challenge. You can't raise uh, these types of issues because this is just the way it's done. This is culture. Um, and I think what the report does is really give um, a voice to workers around the, the need for better protections for whistleblowers. Uh, whistleblowers, I think, what we saw in the Banking Royal Commission was it was usually junior, more low-level staff that had actually identified misconduct early on and they often struggle to elevate that at the appropriate um, the appropriate levels. But it was those those workers that are, are involved every day that they could clearly see that there was an ethical issue with what was occurring. That the way in which that they were being told to sell this product or, or, or go about the the way in which they were doing their work, they they knew that it was wrong. But their ability to speak out and I suppose blow the whistle and expose um, that was really restricted. And I do think that. Um, Bank uh, whistleblowers in the banking sector, by and large, have a very bad experience when they um, when they do that. We know um, 
Jeff Morris is, is a standout. He, he raised concerns of um, conflict and, and poor behaviour and misconduct of, in the financial planning ranks at the CBA very early on. That was such a hard thing for him to do. And we've got to make it easier for whistleblowers. We need adequate protections um, so that they can speak out, so that we can uh, identify the types of concerns quickly um, without these issues dragging on and scandals um, dragging on sometimes for years. So I think the report um, do, does that in a very good way and um, that's something that we need to continue to work on, the, the appropriate protections for whistleblowers. One of the interesting things about Jeff Morris, though, Julia, is that Jeff Morris walked into the CBA, um, uh, into the financial planning arm after a significant time of his career had been spent mm. in high-level management. Mm. Uh, he walks in already having a, a moral compass and a senior managerial experience where he's um, more wow. likely than not to want to to want to rattle the cage because he's already been conditioned at a senior management level. It's it's a bit different, isn't it, for, for people who are junior staffers in a bank that see things going on, they may want to speak out, but they're not yet of a sufficient level or, or perhaps a robustness in personality to be able to take that through uh, through a process. I think that's right. I think that um, to, to draw those kind of um, the distinction between a more senior uh, person like Jeff versus a low-level um, frontline officer in the bank, is, is it, that's a fair assessment. Um, and I know that even when, uh, when Matt Common, for example, post the Royal Commission said to um, all of his kind of senior staff members, I'd like to hear from you about the things that we can do different. This was as a result of the APRA review into culture at the Commonwealth Bank. Um, and many of those people said, actually, I've got nothing new to say because I've already tried to raise these issues uh, about the concerns that I've had, but I was largely ignored. And they were also fairly senior people. So if you think about the fact that the top echelons of a bank um, can't have their concerns considered because that means that you're not part of the culture and the way in which they want you to really have groupthink and it's got to be this way because this way means that we all get our bonuses, um, how could, how could a junior staff member raise these concerns? Um, their ability to, to, to be listened to um, is, is so severely uh, restricted by the, the systems that these big organisations have in place, um, which I think is why it's another reason why report this report and reports like this are so critical because they give an authentic and genuine voice to, for workers to express their experiences and to be heard. Um, because if we don't listen to these experiences, then we're not going to bring about and affect the type of change we need, um, especially around culture and the types of practices and behaviours that um, that we have experienced and seen at the, across the banking sector. Yeah, the report is out and about. It's in the wild. People are able to look at it on your website and certainly people like me have seen the media release that accompanied the release of the report. These reports are done, they're published. Mm. Where has this one gone, Julia, in terms of advocacy and proactivity? Have you have you forwarded on to the, the Federal Treasurer and the relevant ministers? We're working up that plan as we speak, um, but I can tell you that one of the things that we are thinking about really actively um, is how we might develop our own ethical um, formation and training program for our members um, across the sector 
because I do think that the point you've made, we need to develop support and advocacy um, and a program that really encourages people to be whistleblowers, for example, um, and to establish that in a way that is um, safe, that they know that they're doing that um, through an organisation that's trusted. But really, again, I think what was powerful of this report um, is that you've got other people in the same situation as yourself. So encouraging a, a peer support program for finance sector workers who have gone through a similar experience, who probably have been harmed by those experiences, I think really starts to create um, a really powerful group of uh, a community of, of workers who are prepared to take further action and advocacy for the kind of change we need. Um, so I think that there is important work that comes from this report and we're certainly not, not keen for it to sit on the shelf and to, to attract dust. I think that there, as I mentioned, the ongoing lobbying work and advocacy work we need to secure protections for whistleblowers in the private sector, reports like this just, I think, um, are really helpful in, in advocating for that. So you clearly you you would have been you've been talking to your colleagues in the union movement, no doubt. But uh, the the bigger challenge, and correct me if I've got the read wrong here, but the bigger challenge from Mirasit is getting the banks to shift and getting government to look more closely at how corporate whistleblowers are protected. Um, will that be a part of the, the strategy going forward? That's definitely part of our strategy. We've made a number of submissions to earlier Senate inquiries around um, the laws and protections for whistleblowers. Um, and I don't think that the uh, laws that we have today go far enough. And so this, of course, is an issue for our sector. Um, but we know of other whistleblowers, as you said, um, across different industries who have also been treated appallingly, like lives have been ruined as a result of them seeking to um, speak out. So I think that there is more work that we can be doing as a trade union movement to protect the rights of workers who speak out. Um, for us, it's it's really acute, um, Tommy, not just um, in the, your capacity to blow the whistle on corruption or to blow the whistle on unethical practices. Um, that's obviously we've, we've spoken about today already how difficult that is. But finance workers, every finance worker, is essentially gagged by their code of conduct. They can't speak out publicly about any aspect, any aspect at all, uh, with regards to their employment. So the the culture of secret, we don't talk about what what happens, um, starts at that kind of at that entry point when you sign up uh, to be an employee across the across the sector. Um, there are lots of things that we can be doing to change, and one of them goes to um, the secrecy that that is that workers are bound to as part of their code of conduct all the way through to improving um, the rights and protections for whistleblowers um, in appropriate federal law. It's, it, you raise a really fascinating question because if I think about the normal kind of employee contract I've seen, it is usually a non-disclosure agreement, uh, whether it's embedded in your, in your contract or it's separate. There's an NDA sitting there. Mm. It, it, there would, would, of course, be some kind of enterprise agreements you've got in the in the financial services sector. Is that, do those enterprise agreements, agreements you deal with, contain any leeway for people uh, to have a public interest obligation 
or to, to be given a, the right to have public interest, mm. interest disclosure obligation when something like this happens? No, the, the enterprise agreements um, don't allow for it. And it's really the, the policy that the, the employers control. So their policies um, um, uh, link back to their code of conduct and that code of conduct can effectively express whatever they think is appropriate. And it's become a standard practice across the, the sector mm. um, where the code says that you, you can't speak out, you can't jump on social media and make a comment about your employer. Um, you can't even speak about things like what you're paid compared to what your peer is paid. Um, and, I mean, in our sector, in the finance sector, we have the highest gender pay gap across the economy. Uh, it sits at, you know, just over 25%. Um, it's not acceptable for the, the most profitable part of the economy uh, to have a gender pay gap in the, in, in the way that it does. But a big part of it, I mean, it's complex, um, conflicted pay models, and, you know, that's part of today's conversation, the conflicted pay models that um, reign supreme in the sector certainly lead to that. But so does a secret um, lack of transparency that sits with pay where you can't ask the person next to you, you've just come into the organisation like I have, what do you get paid? Those types of conversations are not allowed and they lead to disciplinary action if you have them. It's actually, it's actually a really, really good point because uh, there are smart lawyers <laughs> who sit in, in situations uh, uh, like the one you're talking about that link one document to the other to the other. So your mm. employment agreement re will refer to or even embed you know, the general expectations of, of the employer. Is that something that you might reflect on as you, you know, look at the results of the survey and whether there's a way of embedding um, those kinds of uh, provisions within employment mm. contracts because that is one way of doing it. If the if the employer is committed to ethical conduct, mm. then surely that that ought to be part of the entire uh, entire industrial relations push. Mm. It's a really good point. It's one that we are thinking about ways in which we can um, continue to put pressure on the banks because I think ultimately it creates um, not just the secrecy and the inability to speak out, but it it continues to perpetuate a culture of fear that there's something wrong with me saying something, so um, it's better for me not to say something. Or the culture is really bad and I know that if I want to speak out about it, I'm actually just going to get hit over the head so I'm too scared to say something about what I've seen or, or what's occurring. Um, so there are lots of reasons why, um, Tommy, we should be pushing um, the, the banks for greater transparency and the ability for workers to speak out about the things that are that are confronting them in their workplace. Now, one of the issues you mentioned earlier was training and ethics has been an initiative uh, put forward by the NAB to more broadly educate uh, its staff about ethical matters. Mm. Now, uh, I noticed a media release issued not so long ago by the FSU in relation to this. What is the overall reaction that you have uh, to the NAB having indicated it will implement a broad-ranging training program? Mm. Uh, Professionalising our sector um, uh, is, is a really critical uh, step or, or marker of restoring trust and confidence back to, the, back to the sector with the Australian community. 
Um, and I think that's really important for frontline workers especially because they love their job. They are really proud of the work that they do um, in terms of serving their community, serving their customers. But I can tell you that it was a rough couple of years leading up to and indeed during the Banking Royal Commission for a frontline worker. Um, many of them felt embarrassed and ashamed um, about the things that were being played out. And of course, they weren't part of it, but we're all part of the sector. Um, many members would report that actually they would get changed of an afternoon uh, before they jumped on the train or the bus to ensure that they couldn't be identified through their banking uniform that they worked for a particular bank. Um, that We need to fix that. Still tried. Um, we want bank workers to, to come back to the fact that they provide an essential service to the community. Um, and with that comes the, the, the fact that the customer on the receiving end of that service can trust what they're being sold, can trust the advice that they've been given. And this is why professionalisation um, has been a really critical part of our agenda. We pursued it during the Banking Royal Commission in a number of the submissions that we made, and we are now working actively across the sector to implement and embed the types of um, educational pathways, the types of qualifications, the necessary registration and licensing that actually says it's um, this bank worker has this qualification and therefore can be trusted um, and you as the, the customer can trust that you're going to get the right, um, the right ethical service. So it's been a really important um, aspect for us. As I said, we welcome NAB in, in terms of their announcement. We think it's a, a good first step. Um, but it, developing educational pathways, ensuring that workers have high-quality training programs, um, working towards the recognition of ethical obligations that are owed by sector workers that do exist outside of the employment relationship but always come back to focusing on the best interest of the customer, um, they're the types of training programs and professionalisation programs that we want to be backing and supporting and the industry needs to step up and play their part and actually start to deliver um, for, for frontline workers in this space. Was the union involved in discussions about the NAB program or did it was it released independently? There's, um, any... There was an industry-wide discussion that was occurring um, in and around the Banking Royal Commission um, that the ABA, uh, the Australian Bankers Association, was um, facilitating. And through those conversations, we'd heard from Finzia, which is the program provider at NAB, about their approach and the way in which that they were starting to think about um, constructing the types of uh, programs that, they, that they're now offering. Um, we were actively involved in all of those conversations and more recently we've been um, involved in NAB's discussions uh, with, with NAB, I should say, specifically about this rollout. Um, I don't know that it's perfect. I think it's the start, a start in the right direction. Um, what we would like to see is for the types of qualifications that people, uh, that workers are receiving to be recognised across the sector and to be portable so that it doesn't matter if you work at NAB um, but if you if you leave NAB and start working at um, Westpac, for example, that the qualifications that you're receiving um, around ethical standards, um, professional obligations, that they have broader industry um, recognition. And so that's an area that we need to continue to work on. Um, but also that the professional standards and the obligations um, don't hurt workers insofar as the, the disciplinary programs and regimes that are, that are, that are apply. 
um, at the moment the, the industry uses a conduct background check where if you finish up at one employer and you move on to the other, they share information about workers in a way that doesn't necessarily build in the appropriate forms of natural justice where a worker knows what's being shared, where a worker can challenge that information. And so if a worker is terminated even before an investigation takes place into misconduct, um, that in itself can create a black mark near your name and could result in you being excluded from future employment. Now, we want to make sure that good people work in the industry. We're not here to protect um, anybody that, that undertakes in any form of misconduct. But there needs to be a regime that's fair, transparent, and ultimately affords natural justice to a worker. And we don't yet have that. Um, and that's another aspect of what needs to continue to, what we need to continue to push for um, across the whole sector. Uh, Julia, that's a convenient place for us to, to, to wrap up the discussion. If people want to find the report or uh, look at um, more information that relate to what the union is doing with respect to uh, ethical training and that kind of thing, where, where should they go? They can jump on our website, which is um, fsunion.org.au. Good. So fsunion.org.au for those of you that want to learn more about what the union's doing in relation to the banking banking sector employees, ethics and training. Julia, thanks for joining me for the podcast. Thanks very much. It was lovely to chat with you today. And I'll look forward to uh, hopefully talking to you again sometime soon. And the listeners, take care and we'll no doubt be uh, chatting again reasonably shortly.